Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perial for Wednesday, December 28, 2022. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Lynn Groby to Retire, Supervisor Recognized for Nearly 40 Years in Public Service by David Golbitz. After nearly 40 years serving the residents of Pottawatomie County, Supervisor Lynn Groby will retire on January 3, 2023. Groby, a Pottawatomie County mainstay, never strayed too far from home. A Hancock native, he graduated from Oakland High School in 1961. After earning a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Nebraska at Omaha, followed by three years in the U.S. Army, Groby returned to Hancock to help his dad run the family farm. Groby and his wife, Carolyn, still live on the farm, and with the help from their son, Preston, farming continues to be a lifelong passion. Over his decades of service, Groby, a founding member of the Iowa West Foundation, has served on a number of boards throughout Pottawatomie County, including Hancock United Methodist Church, Hancock American Legion, Western Iowa Development Association, Golden Hills, and Southwest Iowa Planning Council, among others. Public service has always been an important part of my life, Groby said in a press release. I like helping people, and although I'm retiring from Pottawatomie County, I'll continue to help out in any area, in any way I can. Groby was first elected to the Board of Supervisors in 2009 and served for a time with County Auditor Mal Hauser, who himself served on the board for 17 years. It's been a real pleasure working with him for several years, Hauser said. He's always had a keen interest in taking care of county roads and doing what's best for our rural communities and small towns. He's been a great asset for us. Instead of looking back on his career with Pottawatomie County, Groby would rather look forward to the country's future, to the county's future. Our leaders do a great job. Even with a lot on their plates, he said, we are currently seeing an expansion of the courthouse, which will help us better serve residents. A new public health building hopefully comes soon, and there are a lot of things to look forward to in Pottawatomie County. For Board of Supervisors Chairman Tim Wickman, Groby's approach to life is one he hopes to inspire others. It's easy to see what's important to Lynn Groby, Wickman said. Family, home, and community are areas he's prioritized and served. I think that's something we can all admire, and Potawatomi County is better for having him. We wish him the best. The December 27, 2022 County Board meeting also marked the last meeting for Supervisor Justin Schultz, who lost his bid for re-election in the June 2022 primary. At its next meeting on Tuesday, January 3, 2023, the Pottawatomie County Board of Supervisors will swear in new supervisors, Jeff Jorgensen and Susan Miller, along with Scott Belt, who was re-elected for his fourth term. They are joined by Brian Shea and Tim Wickman. The next story is titled, State Agencies Make Bill Proposals, by Aaron Murphy. Dateline, Des Moines. The ages and weights at which children would be required to ride in car safety seats would increase under proposed state legislation. Recurring campaign donations without the donor's active consent would be illegal, as would any handheld use of a mobile device while driving. And pointing a laser at an aircraft would become a crime. 
These are among the proposals made by state agencies filed in advance of the 2023 session of the Iowa Legislature, which begins January 9th. Each year, the state's nonpartisan legislative services agency collects proposed legislation filed ahead of the upcoming session, and it is posted online at legis.iowa.gov under pre-filed bills. While state lawmakers sometimes also file bills during this period, as of Monday afternoon, the roughly two dozen pre-filed bills all were proposed by state departments. The Legislative Services Agency is responsible for drafting a proposed pre-filed bill into final form and then submitting it to both legislative chambers to be considered. Car seats. Children would be required to ride in a rear-facing car seat until the age of three while weighing up to 30 pounds and would be required to ride in a safety seat until the age of eight under legislation proposed by the state public state department, safety department. Under current law, the requirements are lower, up to one year while weighing less than 20 pounds in a rear-facing seat, and up to the age of six in a safety seat. The proposal to raise those limits would increase safety and bring Iowa in line with the neighboring state's regulations, the Iowa Department of Public Safety said in a memo accompanying the proposed bill. The state agency said data shows that, compared to seatbelts alone, car seats reduce the risk of injury in a crash by 71 to 82 percent, and booster seats reduce the risk of injury to children aged 4 to 8 by 45 percent. Iowa has one of the most lax child safety seat laws of all surrounding states, and the fatalities and injuries that result are substantial, the memo says. Lasers and aircraft. Pointing a laser at an aircraft would become a crime under legislation proposed by the Iowa Department Defense Department. Excuse me, the Iowa Public Defense Department, which includes the Iowa National Guard. Over the past couple of years, Iowa National Guard aviators, primarily Army aviators, have increasingly become targets of laser incidents from personnel on the ground. Iowa National Guard Adjutant General Ben Corral wrote in a memo accompanying the proposal. To date, these incidents have not caused injury to crew or aircraft. However, without greater deterrent, I'm concerned laser incidents will continue to rise while at the same time increasing risk to aircraft and crew. The legislation would add pointing a laser toward an aircraft to existing state law that prohibits pointing a laser at an individual with an intent to cause injury. The crime is an assault and ranges from simple misdemeanor to a Class C felony. Distracted driving. Only hands-free use of a mobile device would be allowed while driving under legislation proposed by the State Public Safety Department. This proposal has been around the legislative block. Previous legislatures have considered the ban of any handheld use of mobile devices while driving, but it has not garnered enough support to pass into law. Current state law prohibits texting while driving, but not other forms of handheld mobile devices, using, including using GPS. It is difficult to enforce the current law and change driver behavior because it is virtually 
impossible to discern how the cell phone is being used, says a memo from the Public Safety Department accompanying the proposed legislation. Furthermore, the level of distraction is not due to the task being performed, but rather the mere use of a cell phone while driving. Campaign Donations Campaign organizations would be prohibited from collecting automatic donations without a donor's active consent under legislation proposed by the state's campaign finance watchdog agency. In recent election cycles, there has been a growing trend of campaigns collecting automatic repeating donations from donors. Typically, a donor makes one donation without realizing he or she also has signed up for repeated donations, which are withdrawn automatically and do not stop until the donor requests it. Under legislation proposed by the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board, campaigns would be required to get permission from donors to collect repeating automated donations. The board believes that requiring affirmative consent for recurring contributions will protect contributors and donors from unscrupulous fundraising tactics, the state board wrote in a memo accompanying its legislative proposal. Often those who make a one-time campaign contribution are unaware they have also opted in to making recurring contributions. These recurring contributions, some of which happen as frequently as every week, can be difficult to cancel once discovered. Public records. Upon receiving requests for public records, state government agencies would be required to provide to the requester contact information, an approximate date of the request's fulfillment, and an estimate of any reasonable fees associated with the request under legislation proposed by the Iowa Public Information Board. Government Efficiency The State Auditor's Office would be required annually to update a list of best practices for government efficiency under legislation proposed by State Auditor Rob Sand. Sand, who in November was re-elected to a second four-year term, has operated a program he has designated PIE, which stands for Public Innovations and Efficiencies. His proposed legislation would effectively put the PIE program into state law. It would require the auditor each year to distribute that list of best practices to public entities, request feedback from those entities, and prepare an annual report that analyzes the public entity's response. The last story from the front page is Family Granted $25,000 for Mobile Unit. First Interstate Bank Provides Funding by Tim Johnson. Family Inc. has been awarded a $25,000 grant by First Interstate Bank. The funding will assist in addressing poverty in our community by ensuring access to basic needs through Family's Mobile Wellness Unit, said Family Executive Director Kimberly Kolowski. Access to health care can be a challenge for individuals facing poverty. In order for an individual to have the capacity to face the challenges in their life that contributed to living in poverty, an individual needs to be physically and mentally well. Families Mobile Wellness Unit brings preventative health screenings to underserved individuals where they are and makes funding and finding care more accessible. 
The grant will help family take its mobile wellness unit to four additional counties, she said. The organization expects a 10% increase in services for children and adolescents from rural areas and those who identify as Hispanic or Latino. Family also anticipates making at least 100 referrals to additional resources, services, and supports because of initial contacts through the mobile unit. Family's mobile wellness unit, housed in a converted motorhome, made its debut in late February 2021 during the organization's drive-through, Dr. Seuss Literacy Celebration at the Charles E. Lakin Human Services Campus. Since the unit is equipped with a dental chair, family can use it to conduct oral health screenings and provide fluoride treatments, as well as performing hearing and vision screenings, lead tests, developmental assessments, and nutrition assessments. The group's staff felt it needed a mobile unit to continue to operate its I Smile program during the pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, dental services were canceled everywhere, and then dental clinics slowly began to open, Kolakowski said, when family launched its mobile unit. We do close to 3,000 no-cost oral cleanings in schools every year. With the mobile unit, dental hygienists did not have to enter schools to conduct the screenings and cleanings. Fortunately, family was able to draw on multiple sources to fund the unit, including the Healthy Tomorrow's Partnership for Children program, Delta Dental of Iowa Foundation, State Farm Neighborhood Assist Program, and the Southwest Iowa COVID-19 Response Fund. First Interstate also chose to donate items from its coat and winter wear drive to family and delivered those on December 22nd. There is also a picture accompanying this story about Family Inc. And the caption under the picture says, Tyler Droll, branch manager at the Council Bluffs First Interstate Bank, looks over coats and other winter wear the branch collected in a drive after he delivered them to Family Inc. on December 22nd. And there are two other pictures on the front page of a man walking his dog, and the caption says, Matt Kretschmar and his four-year-old black Labrador Gibbs take a stroll past Tom Hannafin Rivers Edge Park as they walk along the Riverfront Trail on Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. Kretschmar said the two were cooped up inside during last week's extreme cold, so he's thankful for the warmer days ahead and ready to get out and about more with his pup. And the other picture shows them walking along, and the caption is, Gibbs, the dog, demands pats from Matt Kretschmar as they walk along the Riverfront Trail on Tuesday, December 27, 2022. And then we turn to page two, and the headline is One Injured in Car Semi-Crash Tuesday Morning on Highway 92. A young male from Trainer was transported to Nebraska Medicine Tuesday morning after the car he was driving struck a semi-trailer near Highway 92 and 290th Street. The car was westbound on Highway 92 at 7.10 a.m. Tuesday when it struck the trailer, 
according to Pottawatomie County Chief Deputy Jeff Thulin, Chief Deputy at the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office. It apparently had become detached from the semi, and this young male from Trainer was westbound on 92 and, and went under part of the trailer, he said. The driver of the car was extricated by Trainer Fire and Rescue, Thulin said. Authorities initially requested LifeNet, but the patient was able to be transported by ambulance. Highway 92 was closed for about three and a half hours because of the crash, he said. The names and ages of the drivers have not been released. For face of the day, we have Ruckus the dog. Ruckus the dog doesn't want to cause a commotion, but he wants local animal lovers to know that Midlands Humane Society's annual Bark Friday fundraiser is ending soon. Ruckus is a one-year-old male Siberian Husky and German Pointer mix who is currently available for adoption at Midlands. Shelter staff members say he will be an instant welcoming into any home as he has experience with other dogs and children. He is an active pup and will make a great running partner. He even knows commands for right, left, go, and stop. His adoption fee is $225, which covers a microchip, altering, and age-appropriate vaccines. In other shelter news, Midlands is nearing the end of its annual Bark Friday fundraising campaign. They have a goal of $50,000 this year, and they're asking area animal lovers to pitch in from now until the end of 2022. Cash, check, and credit card donations can be made at the shelter, 1020 Railroad Avenue, or on their website. The shelter recently announced that during this final week of fundraising, some donors have agreed to match up to $2,650 raised by the end of the year. Those interested in checking out the shelter's animals should take note that Midlands will have different hours with the upcoming holiday weekend. They will be open from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on New Year's Eve and closed on New Year's Day. Everyone at the shelter wishes Council Bluffs, Pottawatomie County, and all its animals a safe, warm, and happy New Year. More information about fostering, volunteering, and donation opportunities can be found at Midlands humanesociety.org or by calling 712-396-2270. Like their Facebook page to keep up with the Daily Shelter news. The shelter can also be found at Midlands Humane on Twitter and at Midlands Humane Society on Instagram. The next story is Police and Fire Complete Water Rescue at Lake Manawa. Shortly after 6 p.m. Monday, police were called to assist the fire department with a water rescue at Lake Manawa State Park. It was reported two 17-year-olds were in the water at the time of the call, according to a press release from the Council Bluffs Police Department. When officers arrived, both teenagers were at the edge of the ice, holding themselves up with water up to their shoulders. The fire department's water rescue team arrived and divers pulled both the male and female out of the water. An ambulance took the youths to Mercy Hospital in Council Bluffs with non-life-threatening injuries. The next story is Hospital Systems Create Their Own Staffing Agencies by Andy Miller. Like many nurses, 
these days, Alex Scala got a big pay hike when she switched jobs recently. Scala also received a welcome mix of assignments when she joined Pittsburgh-based Allegheny Health Network. She signed on with a newly created team that works shifts in various units within the system's 14 hospitals. After working as a registered nurse on staff at a facility elsewhere, Scala, 31, now commutes from her home in Butler, Pennsylvania, to the system's hospitals across western Pennsylvania. I can meet new people, learn new procedures, how hospitals do different things, Scala said. An increasing number of hospital systems like Allegheny Health Network have created in-house staffing teams to cope with the pandemic-fueled nursing shortage and try to beat private temp staffing agencies at their own game. Depending on the system, the nurses could work a week-long stint or a multiple-week assignment at a hospital and then do a similar schedule at another facility. Some even work self-scheduled shifts in various locations, unlike regular staff nurses who typically work in a single medical unit within one hospital. These workers differ from traditional float nurses who shift from unit to unit on an as-needed basis within a single hospital. The goal of the in-house teams is to offer enough pay and flexibility to attract nurses to the jobs and thus reduce the system's heavy dependence on more expensive RNs from outside agencies. Nationally, such contract labor expenses are nearly 500% higher than they were before the pandemic, according to a consulting firm report commissioned by the American Hospital Association. That spending is pushing many hospitals into the red for 2022. The same firm, Kaufman Hall, estimated recently, although some systems have earned profits during the pandemic. The members of the new staffing units are typically just a small fraction of a hospital system's workforce, and such teams probably wouldn't be feasible for many small or rural facilities. But hospital officials said that internal staffing agencies will grow as nurses and other workers, such as respiratory therapists and surgical techs, seek flexible work arrangements. There's a huge shift in the evolution of healthcare in creating more staff who can move around, said Daniel Hudson, Vice President President of Nursing Administration and Operations at Philadelphia-based Jefferson Health, which recently created a staffing unit that now has 35 full-time workers. Although nursing shortage have existed for years, the staffing crunch deepened as the demands of COVID care pushed many hospital nurses to exhaustion. Some quit, some retired, or sought jobs at home care agencies, ambulatory surgery centers, and medical offices. A lot of nurses left the workforce, including newly trained ones, said Beth Ann Swan, Associate Dean of Emory University's Nell Hodgson's Woodruff School of Nursing in in Atlanta. Turnover for hospital staff RNs rose to 27.1% last year, up from 18.7% in 2020, according to a NSI Nursing Solutions report. So, nurses from temp agencies filled more shifts. Their pay and the subsequent cost to hospitals soared as COVID-19 surged. Travel nurses were earning up to $10,000 a week in in late 2020, although the average price dipped to about $3,000 this year. 
Before the pandemic, Atlanta-based Piedmont Healthcare spent $20 million annually on nurses from such agencies. For the past fiscal year, we spent $400 million, Piedmont CEO Kevin Brown said. About a third of that total went directly to the agencies, not the nurses, he added. To cut out the middleman, Piedmont formed a hospital staffing unit to provide what officials called the best of both worlds, the flexibility of a staffing agency and the stability and support of a local health system. Such work flexibility is a key draw for nurses, said Aiken Demahin, Senior Director of Quality and Patient Safety Policy at the American Hospital Association. Relevant factors include work location and the frequency and structure of shifts. Internal hospital staffing agencies aren't a new concept. The five-hospital Henry Ford Health System, based in Detroit, started its internal staffing unit in 2013. Besides nurses, the pool includes medical assistants as well as surgical and emergency room techs. Members of the team get higher hourly pay than regular staffers do and can choose their shifts. The overall cost is significantly less than using an outside agency's personnel, said Kim Swarrow, director of what the Henry Ford system calls the Best Choice Program. But for many nurses, the in-house hospital programs won't overcome the allure of temp agency pay and travel opportunities, at least during some periods of their life. At the bottom of the page, too, there are news tips. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call us at 712-328-1811 and select option 3 for the newsroom. You can also email us at editorial at nonperial.com or send us mail at the Daily Nonperial Newsroom, 300 West Broadway, Suite 108, Council Bluffs, Iowa, 51503. Please provide as much detail on the idea and contact information as you can. And you can also contact the paper by calling Rachel George, the managing editor, at 712-325-5728, or Peter Huguenin, the sports editor, at 712-325-5736, or Melissa Vanek, circulation manager, 712-325-5778. Melanie Whitaker is the creative director, and her phone number is 712-325-5722. And Jessica Boucher is the classifieds manager, and her phone number is 712-325-5710. You are listening to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perial, for Wednesday, December 28, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Kim Robert Johnson. Kim Robert Johnson, age 81, of Council Bluffs, passed away on December 23, 2022, at home with his family by his side. Kim was born on January 31, 1941, in Huron, South Dakota, to the late Robert L. Johnson and Marjorie M. Ratliff Kurtz. Kim served in the Navy from 1958 to 1962 on the USS Northampton. 
1970, he met the love of his life, Nancy, and married her on March 11, 1972, spending 50 wonderful years together. Kim had a passion for classic cars and collecting old memorabilia. Together, they traveled to 48 states and Canada in their 1940s Mercury. Kim loved his family and many friends. He began his career at Coffee Time, ARA Vending. Kim then became the owner-operator of American Fleet Care for 25 years. Kim is survived by his wife, Nancy Johnson of Council Bluffs, daughter Claudette and Jack Schloss, sons Lee and Joy Durham, Jeff and Colleen Durham, Terry and Cindy Durham, 16 grandchildren and 10 great-grandchildren, brother Thomas R. Johnson. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Thursday, December 29, 2022. Funeral service will be held at 3 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Friday, December 30, 2022. Memorials may be d- directed to Gethsemane Presbyterian Church. Amelie Antony Kurtzfeldt. Amelie Antony Kurtzfeldt, age 92, passed away peacefully on December 25, 2022, in Council Bluffs. Amelie was born June 14, 1930, in Steingrun, Czechoslovakia, to the late Robert and Paula Stutz. She was united in marriage to Melvin W. Kurtzfeldt on April 6, 1966, in Kronsheim, Germany. Amelie has been a resident of Council Bluffs since 1966 and was a long-time and active member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church since 1951. In addition to her parents, she is preceded in death by her husband, Melvin, in 1988, daughter, Loretta Reed Puffenbarger, and brother, Robert Stoitz. Survivors include son, Gerald Stoitz of Germany, daughters, Lyanne and Ferdinand Samuel of Little Rock, Arkansas, Jennifer Suma and Brian Mushkal, of Council Bluffs, uh, Jackie and Troy Wilson gr- of Gretna, Nebraska, and son-in-law, Jeff Puffenbarger, grandchildren and uh, a brother, and great-grandchildren and brother Joseph Stoitz of Germany. Visitation with the family on Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. Funeral service Friday at 10 a.m., all at the funeral home. Interment, Ridgewood Cemetery, followed by a luncheon at the Walnut Hill Reception Center. Memorials are preferred to Seventh-day Adventist Church. Barbara Ann Springer Barbara Ann Springer, age 88, loving wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, was promoted to be with Jesus on December 22, 2022. She loved her family and serving her church, Valley View Baptist, for more than 50 years. She was a Sunday school teacher for two- and three-year-olds for many of those years. At her death, she was a member of Southview Bible Church. She worked for many years at Dairy Queen and mentored many young ladies at her job. She loved to be involved with the activities of her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Barbara was a graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School. Her parents were the late Wilfred and Dolores Richardson. She is survived by her husband of 68 years, Norman Springer Sr., and children Deb Anderson and Norman Springer. She is also survived by two sisters, Beulah Young and Sandy Taylor, and two brothers, Dick Richardson and Joe Richardson, as well as seven grandchildren and 21 great-grandchildren. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Friday, December 30, 2022. 
Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. at Southview Bible Church on Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Interment is in Cedar Lawn Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to Southview Bible Church or Gideon's International. Dale Easton Chambers Dale Easton Chambers, age 91, of Council Bluffs, passed away on December 22, 2022. He was born on October 18, 1931, in Des Moines, Iowa, to Harry and Asta Freeman Chambers. Dale married Mary Anderson on October 2, 1954. He served in the Marines for two years and then joined the Navy, where he retired after 20 years of service. Dale was preceded in death by his parents, wife Mary, sisters Gloria Anderson and Ruth Decker, brothers Robert and Blaine Chambers. He is survived by his children, Debbie Mason, Kendra Wrights, and Philip Chambers, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and other family and friends. Dale loved his family and friends, always giving to everyone. When you would go visit him, you would never leave empty-handed. No one was a stranger, and people would never feel alone or excluded. Dale was always full of jokes and laughing at the end of his life. He made his peace with God, and we all look forward to seeing him in heaven someday. Graveside service with military honors will be at 1130 a.m. Thursday, December 29, 2022, at Garner Township Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Creekside Church, 3320 Harry Langdon Boulevard, Council Bluffs. Joy, oh, Joe A. Lundstedt. Joe A. Lundstedt, age 78, of Omaha, passed away on December 26, 2022. Joe was born February 20, 1944, in Omaha, Nebraska, to the late Thomas and Mary E. Owens Miller, Jr. She married William Lundstedt, Jr. on June 22, 1963, in Council Bluffs. Joe was employed at Farrell Gas and was at para, was a paraeducator at Craft School and was a granny nanny for granddaughter Riley. Joe was a longtime member of the Faith Lutheran Church and recently was baptized at Stonebridge Christian Church. She is preceded in death by her parents, husband William Lundstedt Jr. and granddaughter Michaela Lundstedt. Survivors include daughter Julie Ann Wallace of Omaha, son William D. Lundstedt of Council Bluffs, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Visitation Friday, five to eight at funeral home at the funeral home. Family and friends to meet at the funeral home Saturday at twelve noon for graveside services at Garner Township Cemetery. Diane V. Stapleton. Diane V. Stapleton, age eighty-nine years. Diane was born February fourteenth, nineteen thirty-three, to the late Vernon and Dorothy Meyer. She passed away December twenty-fourth, twenty twenty-two. Diane was known for her bright smile, happy personality, and willingness to help others. She was also known as the Purple Gloved Lady during her 17 and a half years of employment at Walmart at the Manawa store. Diane is preceded in death by her husband, Paul Stapleton. She is survived by daughters Mary Stapleton, Linda Stapleton, Verna Merton, son Tim Stapleton, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Visitation Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service Friday at 12 p.m. also at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless 
Park Chapel, interment at Lewis Township Cemetery. Reception to follow from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Grass Wagon, 110 South 29th Street. Ralph E. Campbell, Jr. Ralph E. Campbell, Jr., age 81. Ralph was born May 17, 1941, to the late Ralph and Doris Campbell, Sr., in Creston, Iowa. He passed away December 25, 2022. Ralph graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1960. Shortly after graduation, he served in the U.S. Navy for four years. Ralph was an edger operator for Midwest Walnut Company with 37 years of service. Ralph is survived by his sister Marlene Dirks, brothers Stephen, Phil, Keith, and Glenn Campbell, other loving family members and friends. Service Friday at 2 p.m. at the Maher Funeral Home, Visitation Thursday, 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Interment at Ridge Wood Cemetery. Memorials are directed by the family. Sean M. Fernald, 57, of Omaha, Nebraska, formerly of Glenwood, Iowa, passed away December 21, 2022. Rosary to begin at 4 p.m. Sunday, January 1st, with visitation to follow from 4.30 to 7 p.m. Massive Christian burial will be Monday, January 2nd at 10.30 a.m., both at Holy Rosary Catholic Church in Glenwood, Iowa. Interment will be in the Silver City Cemetery, Silver City, Iowa. Memorials are directed to the Holy Rosary Catholic Church, 24116 Marion Avenue, Glenwood, Iowa, 51534. Wesley Franks, age 66, passed away December 22, 2022. He was born April 16, 1956, to the late Alfred and Darlene Mass Franks in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Wesley graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his brother, Tracy Franks. Wesley is survived by his wife of 45 years, Sandra Franks, children David Fisher, Sean Fisher, Angel Fisher, Chris Fisher, Nicholas Franks, April Franks, siblings Dan, Franks, Valerie Anderson, Diane Bauer, and Lori Warrenfeltz, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and cousins. Visitation will be held from 12 to 1 p.m. at Hoy Kalnowski Funeral Home on Thursday, December 29, 2022. Funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. at Hoy Kalnowski Funeral Home on Thursday, December 29th. Interment is in Ridgewood Cemetery. The family will direct memorials. Donna L. McKean, January 17, 1938 to December 22, 2022. Donna L. McKean, preceded in death by husband Dennis, daughter Denise, two sisters, and one brother, survived by sons Darren and Becky McKean and Dave and Lori McKean, grandchildren Tina and Jack Grinder, Tyler, Neil, Megan Cook, and Ryan McKean, great-grandchildren Landon Lawson and Lennox Cook, Emery and Avery Grider, and Hadley McKean, many nieces, nephews, and other relatives and friends. Visitation Thursday, December 29th at the Mortuary, 5 to 7 p.m. Funeral service Friday at 11 a.m. at Grace Baptist Church, 205 East Halleck Street, Papillon. Interment, Valley View Cemetery, Persia, Iowa. Memorial suggested to Mercy Network Foundation, 
care of Grace Baptist Church. Carolyn Sue Alley. Carolyn Sue Alley, age 74, passed away December 24, 2022, at home, surrounded by family. Visitation, 5 to 6 p.m. Thursday, December 29, 2022, with the celebration of her life at 6 p.m. at Hoy Kalnoski Funeral Home, 1221 North 16th Street, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Memorials may be directed to St. Jude Children's Hospital. Wayne Austin Mike Gooden. Wayne Austin Mike Gooden, age 74, of Council Bluffs, passed away on Friday, December 23, 2022, at his home. Mike was born on September 19, 1948, in Council Bluffs to the late Wayne and Maxine Bliss Gooden. Mike married Cynthia Minio on August 10, 1991. Mike was self-employed with Absolute Security, Inc., retiring in 2008. Mike was preceded in death by his sister, Jean Clear, daughter-in-law, Jackie Gibalisco. Survivors include his wife, Cindy Gooden of Council Bluffs, children Mike Gibalisco of Omaha, Jerry Ann and Dustin Miller of, Sh- of Council Bluffs, Derek Gooden of Council Bluffs, Jackie Stubbs of Omaha, three grandchildren, several great-grandchildren, other relatives. Cremation. Celebration of life. Visitation on Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. with sharing of memories at 6 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. Memorials are suggested to the American Cancer Society or to Braden's Hope for Childhood Cancer, Olathe, Kansas. Mary Lou Reichart Anson. Mary Lou Reichart Anson, age 89, passed away peacefully on December 23, 2022, at Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital with her sister and brother by her side. She was born in Council Bluffs on March 2, 1933, at the home of her parents, the late Robert and Hazel Dottie Reichert. Mary married William Wild Bill Anson on December 9, 1960. Mary was preceded in death by her parents, husband, William, sister, Joan Reichart, brother, Bob Reichart, and brother-in-law, Carl Covey. Mary is survived by her sister, Shirley Covey, brother, William, and Teresa Reichart, and many nieces and nephews. Visitation will be held from 3 to 4 p.m. at Hoy Kalnoski Funeral Home on Wednesday, December 28, 2022. Memorial service will be held at 4 p.m. at Hoy Kalnoski Funeral Home on Wednesday, December 28, 2022. Memorials can be directed to the Council Bluffs Animal Shelter. Turning to the sports page, the headline is Grappler's Grind at CB Classic, and there are five pictures, and I will read the captions under each picture. St. Albert's Andrew Crawley competes against Washburn's Brody Byrne during the Council Bluffs Wrestling Classic at Mid-America Center on Saturday, December 10, 2022. Then, Underwood's Lucas Bowes bottom gravels, grapples with Omaha Scott's Nicholas Rotella during the Council Bluffs Wrestling Classic at the Mid-America Center on Saturday, December 10, 2022. Then Thomas Jefferson's Isaac Carpenter on the bottom grapples with Iowa City West's Jack Law during the Council Bluffs Wrestling Classic. And then Glenwood's Reese Fauble on top grapples with Olathe's North's Austin Timmons during the Council Bluffs Wrestling Classic. And then 
The last picture is Council Bluffs' Chloe Wieland left is crowned the winner of her match after pinning Papillon La Vista's Valeria Robles during the Council Bluffs Wrestling Classic on December 10th. And then there's a story about college football, and the title is Barta Defends Not Sharing Ticket Database by Steve Batterson. University of Iowa Director of Athletics Gary Barta said the university's athletics department has no plans to give the operators of the Swarm Collective a list of Iowa football and basketball season ticket holders it wants to use to raise funds. In an open letter to fans posted Tuesday on the athletic department's social media site, Barta addressed questions that have risen after operators of the collective organized to raise money to benefit name, image, and likeness, NIL, needs of the Iowa football and men's and women's basketball programs, criticized the university for not making its list of ticket holders available. In an article published Saturday on the website hawkfanatic.com, Swarm Collective CEO Brad Heinrichs expressed frustration with the school's refusal to provide his organization with a list of ticket holders that it could use to market its operations. Heinrich said the university turned down the request because his group provides funds to only three sports, seeking instead that dollars be distributed equally between all sports to meet Title IX requirements. A former Iowa golfer who organized the collective, Heinrichs wants his group's funds to go to the three sports it was set up to support. In his letter, Barta pointed out that under NCAA rules, collectives must operate outside of and independently from university athletic departments. He said his department has partnered with the Swarm Collective in several ways within the framework of the rules. Barta cited a fundraising event held at the Iowa football facility during the fall and a trip to New York City where contributors to the Swarm received an inside view of Iowa men's basketball. He said the Swarm's decision to become a corporate sponsor through Hawkeye Sports Properties will provide additional opportunities for the athletic department to promote the collective within NCAA rules. Access to the Hawkeye season ticket holder and contributor databases are never released directly to a third party, Barter wrote. We have, on occasion, promoted opportunities and or services of various partners. We will continue to do this in the future. He cited, as an example, allowing coaches to record video messages encouraging fans and season ticket holders to support Iowa student-athletes. There are, and will continue to be, limitations on the athletic department's involvement in collectives related to NCAA rules, tax laws, Title IX law, etc., Barter wrote. The concept and rules surrounding NIL collectives will continue to evolve, the Hawkeyes will continue to advance with those changes. Barta concluded his letter by encouraging interested fans to visit the Swarm organization's website, iowaswarm.com, to learn more about the group. He said the university has worked through a changing landscape to provide its student-athletes and coaches with the ability to remain competitive and relevant, adding, we are equally committed to navigating these changes as we've always done in the right way. He pointed to numerous examples of how the department has assisted Iowa student-athletes in navigating their opportunities, brand, and earning potential. 
That's it for sports. So we will turn back to the main part of the paper, and we find this article, Two Potawatomi County Students Complete Graduate Health Programs at UNMC, by Tim Johnson. Diplomas were conferred on nearly 400 University of Nebraska Medical Center students on December 16th in a ceremony at Baxter Area in Omaha. The following is a list of graduates from the Colleges of Nursing and Allied Health Professions. Some graduating students are not listed below because they have requested their information not be released to the public. UNMC College of Nursing in Omaha, Doctor of Nursing Practice, Council Bluffs, Teresa Diedrich. Turning to the lifestyle page, there is uh, an article titled Diet Considerations in Freezing Weather. Before I moved to western Nebraska, I thought a blizzard was a frozen milkshake with a gazillion calories. Then I experienced a storm with snow going sideways at 40 miles an hour. That was a blizzard. According to the National Weather Service, a blizzard is a storm with large amounts of snow, winds greater than 35 miles per hour, and visibility less than a quarter of a mile. Apparently, it's the strength of the wind that distinguishes a blizzard from a snowstorm. Blustery weather makes me thankful for electricity and hot coffee. Our dogs are happy we let them in by the fireplace, and even though they haven't said so, I know the horses and cattle are relieved when they see my husband bringing them extra hay in his big green tractor. Animals in the cold need extra energy to maintain their body temperature. Is that true of us humans as well? It is if we're shivering in the cold trying to keep warm. Not so if we're dressed like a grizzly bear in hibernation. Just to maneuver through an icy blast with all that gear on can definitely use up some extra calories, however. Some studies show that exposure to cold makes us feel hungrier even if we don't need the extra calories. I do admit it's not always easy to fight off the urge to bake cookies when the weather outside is frightful. Cold weather can also blunt our feeling of thirst, and since working outside in cold weather causes loss of fluid from our breath and sweat, not getting adequate fluids can develop into a serious situation in a hurry. Besides, a thank you to linemen who keep the power on, farmers and ranchers who feed and care for their animals, and delivery drivers who bring us precious packages this time of year, a thoughtful gift might be a hot beverage to go. People who live in colder climates also have a higher risk for a deficiency of vitamin D than those in warmer locales. That's because vitamin D is manufactured when our skin is exposed to sunshine. And even if your weather is toasty, the shorter days of sunlight in winter months can lessen your body's ability to make this important nutrient. One other thing we know, according to data from the U.S. and around the world, when the temperature drops, people tend to consume more alcohol, and those extra cups of cheer can add up to a whole host of problems, specifically if you are trapped in the house with unwanted relatives. So, put on a pot of tea and try not to eat all of the cookies. And that is by Barbara Intermill, and she is a registered dietitian. Her email is barbara at quintessentialnutrition.com. The next story is Dakota Riders Complete Trip to Honor Ancestors. <laughs> 
Dateline, Mankato, Minnesota. Dakota tribal members have completed what could be their final annual 330-mile ride on horseback to honor 40 of their ancestors who were killed in the aftermath of the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reported that the riders arrived in Mankato on Monday morning after setting out from Lower Brule, South Dakota. The riders endured two snowstorms and frigid days. Hundreds of people cheered the riders' arrival in Mankato. I felt the ancestors protected us and were with us all the way, Andrea Eastman said. The riders have been making the trip each December since 2005 to retrace the route their ancestors took to a reservation in South Dakota. The U.S. government moved tribal members to that state following the mass hanging of 38 tribal members on December 26, 1862, in Mankato. Two others were later captured and hanged. The executions were designed to punish the tribal members for participating in the war. Minnesota Governor Tim Walls was among the crowd that greeted the writers. He apologized for how the Dakota were treated and said teaching indigenous students in Minnesota schools is a start toward reconciliation. Some Minnesota schools require ethnic studies. State lawmakers could consider a bill this session to mandate such studies statewide. This year's ride will be the last one set up by the original organizers. They say they're stepping away, but Eastman said the rides could resume sometime in the future. For this ride, it's the last, Eastman said, but we'll be coming again. Stay tuned. And finally, relative warm trend continues. It could be worse is the easiest way to describe this week's weather forecast, and compared to last week, it's much better. A relative warm trend continues, the National Weather Service said in its forecast discussion. Today's high will be around 40, with temperatures expected in that low 40s range through the rest of the week. Skies will be mostly cloudy, and a south wind is expected to gust as high as 22 miles per hour. Tonight will be cloudy, with a low around 28. The wind will calm after midnight. The forecast, according to the Weather Service, is today mostly cloudy, with a high near 40. South wind, 7 to 14 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 22 miles per hour. And tonight, cloudy with a low around 28. South wind, 5 to 7 miles per hour, becoming calm after midnight. And that does it for today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non for Wednesday, December 28, 2022. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thank you for listening.